Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Early on in the COVID crisis, doctors and health systems adapted quickly and brought patients virtual care. But months later, with in-person visits returning, are providers capitalizing on that advantage to develop robust digital care strategies? We talk about that on today's episode of GIST Healthcare Daily with GIST Healthcare co-founders Chaz Rhodes and Dr. Lisa Belomovich. It's Monday, September 28th, and I'm Alex Olgan with GIST Healthcare Daily, where I get the headlines in health business and policy news in under 10 minutes. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review. It helps other listeners find the show. Last time we spoke in August, you both talked about watching out for a telehealth land grab. So where do we stand? Who's grabbing the most land? Health systems, payers, providers, or disruptors? Well, there's certainly been a lot of activity around uh, telemedicine. And on the disruptor side, I think most of the story has been the uh, you know the IPO of Amwell and the the acquisition of of Livongo by Teladoc. You know clearly these are two big companies that are trying to build comprehensive telemedicine platforms. I don't think either of those is the final answer for what telemedicine is going to look like, but it does, I think, indicate that there's some real investor interest here, and that echoes what we've heard from um, you know from the VC community and from the private equity community that there's really you know, a lot of excitement about investing in virtual care coming out of COVID. Alex, I would expect payers to make big moves into uh, further telemedicine investments uh, later this year and early next. If you think about the position that they're approaching this from, you know, they're flush with cash right now, having banked uh, a lot during the COVID crisis. And from a strategic perspective, Virtual care is one of the few channels where payers can directly offer something of value to consumers. You know, we all call ourselves members of our health plan, but when you think about it, what do you actually get that feels valuable to you uh, from your insurance company other than hopefully the chance to not pay for all your care? Uh, If my insurance company could bring me a suite of virtual care options, you know, that's something that could make an individual more loyal to their health plan. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think the real question is going to be, what do consumers really care about when it comes to telemedicine? So is it, is it really just convenience care? And, you know, it's, it's fine to have a visit with whoever, because it's really just an urgent care sort of situation, or 
do they care about it being integrated with the rest of their healthcare? So do they care that it's their doctor? Do they care that it's, you know, linked to their, to the health system that they use? Um, I don't think we know the answer to that yet, but I think that's going to be the big determinant of how this land grab uh, plays out. And we're already seeing payers offer those virtual care benefits like Oscar Health, which is offering a $0 copay virtual primary care plan, and Kaiser is offering something similar in Washington state. Payers are gobbling up virtual care and home care companies. Humana invested in Heal, and United Health Group is looking to acquire virtual behavior health provider AbleTo. Are you watching for continued consolidation? Yeah, it's really interesting when you mention uh, Kaiser and Oscar and, you know, even a couple of the blues plans, you know, who usually don't get marks for being highly innovative, are out in the market this year with virtual care plan options or virtual primary care networks. As best we can tell from digging into these, largely they're just repackaging the baseline telemedicine uh, you know, office visits and triage that they'd offered before, but they definitely sense a market opening with patients being reticent to go into physical care settings to offer something to them with a virtual care wrapper. With payers and other telehealth companies like Teladoc and Amwell offering urgent virtual care, are you expecting there to be a referral battle of sorts where health systems are jockeying for these virtual care companies to get them to send patients to their local facilities for in-person care? That's an interesting question. It gets to uh, you know, the fundamental decision for health systems of whether they want to own the channel or be the subcontractor to someone who owns the virtual care channel. Um, My opinion, I think health systems would be wise to not only own the channel, but make sure the connection to a specialist referral or to a physical care need is a super seamless process because that's the advantage that they have over disruptors or health plans, that they have the full care continuum um, and being able to bring that in a you know easy to use solution that solves the patient's complete problem um, is where they can stake their claim in a way that no other entity can. I, I think the question is going to be um, again, how much does it matter that this is integrated with the rest of your care, and how much should actually be delivered virtually? So the thing that's happening now, I mean, there was a ton of you know, exuberance and kind of breathless enthusiasm for telemedicine at the height of of, uh, of COVID, you know, in the late spring and early summer, um, when everything shut down and nobody went in person, to, you know, to the doctor or, you know, everybody was afraid of going into care settings. Almost everybody that we talk to now on the provider side has told us that that now has tailed off. And then in fact, uh, in some cases, we've heard that telemedicine visits are down below where they were before the pandemic. And so people are worried, like, is this not actually going to be a thing? And, you know, maybe there's just a big backslide here. Um, and I think part of the answer is, uh, to, part of the answer to figuring out what, you know, why that's happening and is it going to last is what is the role of telemedicine in somebody's overall care consumption universe, if you will? Yeah, I think that is super important. If you think about how telemedicine was applied in the throes of the crisis, when everyone was just trying to figure out which way was up and how are we going to connect with patients, health systems and doctors kind of threw it at everything. 
And, you know, I think if you talk to any clinician, they'll say, you know, my gut feeling is that there's some things that telemedicine is great for and we should keep on doing it. Behavioral health, dermatology, you know, a first hit triage, you know, for primary care or urgent care. But then there's other things where the in-person interaction, you know, really matters. Uh, if I go to see an ENT doc, I need her to look at my ears, nose, and throat in most cases. So the challenge that providers are finding themselves in is that they really need to spend the time and take their care pathways and figure out where is it great, where is it not so great, and how do we integrate this in with the rest of the care that we're delivering? I mean, I think the good thing is they actually did this pretty well for one very new care pathway. Think about how COVID care was delivered, where you know now I might use an online symptom checker to do a first triage. You know, it could be uh, delivered via AI, and I'm not even uh, directly interacting with the provider. Then I do a telemedicine visit. I go and I you know get my test at a drive-through care site sponsored by a health system uh, that didn't exist before COVID. I'm not going to my doctor's office. This is something that was put together very quickly and is completely new and takes advantage of virtual care. We just need to do this to about 200 other things. What about patient expectations? Telehealth isn't new anymore. And will patients have higher standards for a seamless, glitch-free experience? People are pretty forgiving during the height of the crisis with the quality of the experience on telemedicine. So people are fine to hop on a Zoom call with their doctor and it could be clunky. And um, but, but I think going forward and particularly into next year as things settle down, one of the important things is going to be making this a really good experience for consumers and making it feel like it's actually real care consumption, not just sort of a junky side, uh, you know, side business for, for traditional providers. Yeah, Alex, do we have time for a personal story? Yeah, <laughs> this is a good one. <laughs> so at the end of May, I had my first pandemic telemedicine visit that was actually for something really simple. I just needed a refill of an asthma medication, which had been done over the phone a dozen times. But this time they said, hey, let's check in with a telemedicine visit. So I scheduled it um, and logged on and seamless process to log on. I was met by a medical assistant who was sitting in an exam room who took some background information and she said, just hang on a moment. The doctor will be in to see you. Uh, well, a moment stretched to 23 minutes, which I knew because there was a count up clock on the uh, Microsoft Teams window before my doctor came into the room. In that waiting time, I was sitting there looking at the same wall I'd be looking at if I was in the exam room with the otoscope and the blood pressure cuff hanging on the wall. I mean, just give me a paper gown and crank the temp down 10 degrees and it would be just like being there. Um, <laughs> so funny, there was no one in the room though. The lights actually went out halfway through the wait. Um, when my doctor came in, we had a very pleasant five minute interaction where she apologized for being late because she had encountered a couple of complex patients along the way. I was totally forgiving because she was my physician uh, and I know she spends the time with me when I need it. But if this was my first experience with the practice, I can pretty much guarantee I'd never be going back. So, and I think that's, you know, as, as health systems and physician practices try to figure out, okay, do we really want to adopt this as, as, a, as a substantial part of the way we deliver care to our patients? I think they're going to have to answer questions about how do we make it work operationally, right? I mean, you can't, you know, if it's just going to be scattered in among my other 
fee-for-service 15-minute visits that I'm doing in my office. And, and then I do walk down the hall to the telemedicine room and I, my 1030 is, is just a computer. It's not a person. I don't think that's going to work. I think workflow is going to have to change. I think uh, practices and, and health systems are going to have to figure out, do we centralize this? Do, is it distributed in all, in all of the practice locations? Do we devote big chunks of physicians' time to delivering telemedicine visits? And then the big question that, that I think is on everybody's mind is how much are we going to get paid for it? Uh, because as much as we'd like to be delivering care this way, what we know is sort of the iron law of healthcare is that if we don't get paid for it, we're probably not going to do it, or at least we're not going to take it seriously. You talk about operational challenges. I mean, there's a question where if doctors are still seeing patients in the office and you still have to have medical assistance and other providers and equipment, does telehealth really lower any of your costs? That's a good question. <laughs> a really good question, Alex. And I think the answer is probably no. If you're still staffing the practice the same way, if the doc is still devoting largely the same amount of time uh, to the interaction, it's no. Your infrastructure costs are still the same. And honest moment, costs have probably gone up a little bit, at least in the short term, uh, because uh, the doc's having to invest in technology. I mean, if you're a health system or a physician practice who's in the risk business and you're not you know, living on you know, pure fee-for-service revenue, then the picture looks a little different. And I do think even if you can get a little bit of risk or if you can uh, make a little bit of an investment in this, there's a win-win here with the payers, right? I mean, the payers clearly are going to expect a lower price from providers for delivering virtual care, as they should, because it, realistically, it's not as valuable as an in-person visit in some cases, and it's also not as expensive to deliver in, in most cases. Um, but clearly, it's the, you know, the cost of it is not zero. I mean, there's a real investment that people have to make here to deliver this well. And so, you know, the question is, will payers and providers find that middle space where there's a win-win on pricing, or does this become uh, really a hearts and minds battle between the two of them and, because of the consumer engagement thing that, uh, that Lisa talked about earlier? Yeah, and Chaz, you bring up a good point about providers needing to find an alternative revenue model to pay, you know, for virtual care from anything from, you know, letting me text my doc to a telemedicine visit to more care delivered within the home. Uh, you know, risk is obviously one of those models that could allow for it. And I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. I think that providers who are banking on telemedicine parity or the idea that we'll be paid the same for an in-person visit and a virtual visit for the long term are fooling themselves. It's wishful thinking. Yeah, there's no way that's going to be the outcome. I think that's exactly right. Nor should it be. I mean, I think there should be some reflection of what the actual costs are. And, and I think it's got to be more integrated with the rest of a consumer's care there's always these sort of false choices that get that get teed up like should we just should everything be virtual should it be bricks and mortar or or, or you know clicks and and uh, and virtual visits instead of bricks and mortar and it's not an either or proposition the answer is there's some mix you had uh rashika from iora on your podcast last week and one of the things he said was they're trying to find the right balance which I think he said was something like 30%, maybe 30% of their, uh, of their work with their patients can be virtual. And that, pro that sounds right. Um, 
but it can't be the only way you interact with a patient. And that 30% has got to link up with the, all the other stuff that you're doing with that patient across the course of the year. And we have to think about how to make it a seamless experience for the, for the patient and the caregiver. Are you seeing providers and health systems making progress on creating high quality virtual care options for patients? Or are you finding a reticence to invest because it's unclear what reimbursement will look like? It's some of it for sure, uh, but it's not all of it. I think there's a couple of other things playing in. You know, first of all, uh, health systems and doctors are tired. You know, it has been six months of constant stress, change, and worry, uh, and that's building up, and that makes creating momentum uh, and keeping it going around something new like telemedicine really, really hard. Um, but you know what else? I'm also worried. We're hearing a lot more conversations around things like virtual care where it's feeling like we are returning to pre-pandemic 2019. Um, as systems are thinking about building this for the long term, you know, now we're getting back into things like turf wars. Who's going to control this? Whose job is it to do telemedicine? Um, you know, how are incentives going to be distributed? Do we need to change physician compensation? Um, you know, are we really getting out over our skis? And like you said, do we need to wait to see what's going to happen with payment rather than trying to be, you know, first to market? Um, all of those questions and issues are real, um, but it does create the nagging feeling um, that doctors and health systems will lose the advantage that they got where they were really the ones who brought virtual care to patients early in the COVID crisis, and they got a lot of credit for it. I do think if you pull up from all of these intermediate term or short term operational questions and payment questions and so forth, I mean, the reality of 50,000 feet is this is where care is going. There's just no question about it. And, you know, all you need to do to figure that out is look at every other part of our lives. Everything has gone digital, right? I mean, it's, you know, people often talk about, uh, you know, banks and, and, the, and, the, and the replacement of, you know, human tellers and people going into banks with online banking or even ATMs, which is a sort of an intermediate step along the way. But then if actually, you know, a story on banking that, that a lot of people don't realize is that there's been an enormous growth in retail bank locations across the last 10 years, even as there's been this huge proliferation of other ways to do banking. And I think it goes to this notion that uh, health systems are just starting to get onto that we've actually got to be an omni-channel business. We've got to meet our consumers wherever they are. There's a substantial proportion of people that would just rather interact with us virtually when they can. And as the millennials, you know, enter their healthcare consumption years, which they will over the next 10 years or so, you know, as they're, as they're nearing 40 years old on average, I think this is just going to be a big component of how healthcare gets delivered in this country. That's probably not a blindingly insightful thing to say, you know, the future is digital. Um, every consultant has said that for at least the last 10 years, but I think we're starting to see the reality of it. Chaz, you wrote a couple weeks ago about how some health systems are considering creating a chief telemedicine officer or a chief virtual care officer, and you wrote that you don't think that's a great idea. Why? Well, I mean, this is, <laughs> it's funny in a sort of a tragic way, but this is how you can tell when health systems, you know, traditional hidebound hospital organizations don't really know how to do something is then they create a chief officer around it, like a chief 
you know, transformation officer, or a chief population health officer, a chief patient experience officer. And now you're starting to see these chief digital officers uh, uh, crop up everywhere. And I mean, that's fine in the sense that it brings organizational focus and momentum around the issue. But the sooner uh, traditional providers can stop thinking about digital as a separate line of business and instead just think of it as one of the modalities of how you know, all of our business gets done, I think the better off they'll be. There are technical things that require special, you know, specialized executives and leaders inside organizations that have to, you know, that have to do with the IT component of it. And, and there are technical things on the clinical side as well, but it's not as though there's a digital division. I, I just think that's the wrong way to think, uh, to sort of approach the problem. Yeah, we had a smart chief digital officer tell us that he'll know that he succeeded in his job when there's no need for a chief digital officer anymore because it's not something separate. It's just the way we do things. What are some other smart or innovative ways you guys have heard of health systems or providers incorporating digital care into their overall strategies? I think one of the insights that we've started to hear from from people who are really smart about this is um, that they're reframing it not so much about digital or virtual care or telemedicine as they're reframing it as uh, as care anywhere or care at care at home. And if you really think about it, there aren't a lot of other places that people will be consuming care virtually other than in their homes. I suppose it's possible that people could be sitting in a Starbucks somewhere doing a, a physician visit, but I don't think that's most of how this is going to happen. I think most of it's going to happen in the patient's home. Um, and so beginning to think about the suite of things that we can do for a patient in their home um, and not just video visits and phone visits, but text messages and remote monitoring and even home visits from physical people who come to your house. Um, I think all of that coheres around a home-based care strategy that is that is, I think, a helpful way to reframe it away from just talking about telemedicine per se. I 100% agree. Because um, there's two things there that you said that are really important. One is the idea of care anywhere and bringing care to the patient's home. If you're already doing telemedicine, bringing care to the home, you're probably two thirds of the way there by being able to offer good solid virtual visits. Uh, but the things that you mentioned um, that need to go along with it are really important. A lot of times I don't need to do a face-to-face real-time Zoom call. I could just text you my need for a refill. Um, or there are certain physical services, whether it's a, you know, a vaccine for you know, a kid who needs it to go to school, or you know, all the way up to things like hospital at home, which Alex, I know that uh, uh, you've done a lot of reporting on where we're delivering acute care services within the home. We're combining the physical and virtual where the patient is, uh, will be really, really powerful. Thanks to you both for joining me. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Alex. It was fun. We should do it again soon. Our next conversation with GIST Healthcare co-founders Chaz Rhodes and Lisa Belomovich will be Friday, October 30th, and we'll talk about the election, what it could mean for healthcare, and the upcoming case challenging the Affordable Care Act. Thanks for listening to GIST Healthcare Daily. I'm Alex Olkin. You can check out more insights on healthcare business and policy news on GISTHealthcare.com. GIST Healthcare Daily is an independent production of GIST Healthcare.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365 day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30 night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details.